Look around, what do you see? Cars, lots of them. And guess what? They're probably on Auto Trader. Whether you're into timeless classics or the latest trends, did somebody say solar-powered, eco-friendly, vegan, leather-wrapped, aromatherapy-scented, disco ball-equipped, self-driving car? If you see it on the road, you can likely find it on Auto Trader. Big cars, small cars, blue cars, new cars, used cars, electric cars, and one day, maybe even flying cars. With millions of options to choose from, buying a car becomes a whole lot easier. See it. Find it. Auto Trader. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh, and there's Chuck, and Jerry's here, too, and this is Stuff You Should Know. What are you laughing at, Chuck? Hey, you, just, you made your first joke right out of the gate. What was it? You know, you just did it. I'm not going to do it. Oh, the little jazz hands? Yeah. That's yeah. what I pictured. That was not a joke. I was dead serious. Oh, all right. Speaking of jazz, Chuck, how about that jazz age? Oh, look at you. <laughs> Dorothy Parker. So, you requested this one. Livia helped us out with it. Mm-hmm. What... What, what, why, what? I have no idea why Dorothy Parker popped into my brain. There wasn't anything. Uh-huh. I'd seen the movie a long time ago. Uh, what, the Darth- Dorothy Parker story? Yeah, Dorothy Parker and the Vicious Circle was the name of the movie. Okay. A uh, great Alan Rudolph film starring Jennifer Jason Lee, JJL, as uh, Dorothy Parker. Okay. Great cast, rounded it out. Cable Scott, Matthew Broderick, others. Wow, uh, Campbell Scott was this ninety three, ninety two? It was not quite that old, but it was okay. It, I think it was late nineties or early aughts. Okay. Uh, although he was just in something I saw recently. What Campbell was Scott in? was. Yeah, he's in like a Marvel movie or something. I think. Oh, okay. Is he a good guy or a bad guy? I think. Well, I don't think he's a bad guy. Um, that's sad. I like Campbell Scott though. You know, that's George C. Scott's son, right? I did not know that for yeah. real. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he's one of those. I think that somehow. That's not the most common knowledge, despite no, having the same last name and profession. If, if I didn't know, it's not common knowledge. He doesn't really look like him, so. Not at all. Uh, yeah, I have no idea why Dorothy Parker popped into my head. I really don't. So, but there it is. It's kind of, it's kind of understandable because <sighs> I'm trying to figure out how to describe her. Dorothy Parker is one of those very rare people who – was so witty yeah. that that is what she's remembered for. Yeah. She worked prolifically through the through Prohibition, basically through the 20s to the early 30s, um, and apparently, like, basically in step with it. And then that was it. Like, her, her, her writing really fell off after that. She did some screenwriting, but yeah. her body of work is not super extensive. If you asked her, it wasn't that great. But she was so witty and so... She's sharp and funny mm-hmm. um, that that she still – she just became a literary legend because of it. Yeah. Uh, I think this quote from the New York Times kind of says it all. 
Uh, most writers are known for the works they leave behind. Dorothy Parker is best known for having lunch. <laughs> and this was, uh, I, I resist, I'm not going to say that, I'm not going to compare her to people these days that are famous without really having done much. Because mm-hmm. that's a, a different category. She was a writer and she was a very talented writer. Sure. She just wasn't extraordinarily prolific. Um, I don't think <clears> she <throat> loved to write from what I've gathered. Like I can't crawl into her head, but all the stuff I've read, it didn't seem like it was like her favorite thing in the world. Like she, you know, she was a poet, but she wouldn't even call them poems. She called them verses. She, she didn't know it. Yeah. She was always, she was always kind of undercutting her own work i think in a self-deprecating way which yeah. was maybe just sort of part of the shtick of being dorothy parker well i i read a um esquire article from 1968 written by wyatt cooper who's anderson cooper's dad oh okay it's called um i think whatever you know about dorothy parker is wrong okay something along those lines <laughs> yeah Anyway, it's on the so internet. Of yourself. It's really good. <laughs> yeah, there's like a bunch of ellipses in there. Yeah, uh, in the title. Um, but he he kind of pegged it as she had that same kind of um, uh, fear of inadequacy that any writer mm-hmm. has. Yeah. But hers just got worse and worse to the point where it paralyzed her, and mm. she just couldn't write any longer. Wow. Yeah, she also was quoted as saying she um, she would write five words and then change seven. Yeah, which in and of itself is a great line, which is what she's known for. Yeah, known for humdingers, mm-hmm. uh, zingers, sure. one-liners. Humzingers. Um, yeah, and that whole quote about having lunch is a reference to her membership in the Algonquin Roundtable, which was basically a lunch bunch of these great literary uh, minds all coming together in the Algonquin Hotel to have lunch, and it became really famous and really beloved, and she's probably the most famous of that whole group. Right, and that is the vicious circle of the movie title. Uh, it was also called the vicious circle. Yeah, the Algonquin Round Table was right. Yeah, and it was named because they were all having lunch one day, and I'm sure someone nearby said, "Look at them! That is a vicious circle." <laughs> that was great. Someone said, "Write so, that down." Hopefully, we'll be able to get across kind of what we're trying to say here, because this is going to be one of the most challenging episodes ever. Because we have to get across. Why she was so why she's worth doing an episode on, you know? It's it's more like other people you'd be like, oh well they they figured out the double helix of DNA right. or <laughs> you know, they um they invented the race car, something like that. She was a a kind of a short lived writer who had a really great wit and like we have to flesh it out more than that. Mm, all right. You seem uh, doubtful. <sighs> You're not saying what did she ever do that was so great, right? No, I'm, I'm questioning our ability to get across why she was so great. That's my that's that's my trepidation. Okay, well, I mean, she would like if she was alive today, she would be the person that was most well known for like Twitter. <laughs> oh yeah, she would be good at that. Huh? <laughs> She'd be really good at that. Uh, all right, so let's jump back in her life. Um, her she was born in uh, down the shore. In New Jersey, uh, to she was born Dorothy Rothschild. Mm-hmm. Uh, this makes me immediately sidetrack quickly. Her nickname was Dot or Dottie, uh, and I cannot hear the name Dottie without thinking of one of my favorite comedy bits of all time, uh, stand-up bits, which is Gary Gullman's bit on uh, abbreviating the states. Have you ever seen that? 
No, I, I don't know who Gary Goldman is. He Goldman, G U L M A N. He's a he's really tall. He's like six six. He's a comedian. Okay, uh, but just everyone should, but you especially because you like stand up. Just go go uh, after this and and find Gary Goldman's state abbreviations bit because it okay. is fantastic. <clears throat> and there's a character in the bit named Dottie. So I always think of that. But she was born in 1893 uh, to a father who was Jewish. He was in the garment district. Uh, he worked in the garment district. Henry Rothschild and her mother was Scottish-American. Her name was Eliza. And like I said, she was born down the shore of New Jersey, but mainly uh, grew up on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. Right. Um, and she had a lot of tragedy surrounding her. Yeah. I saw I saw um, her myth, misanthropy was chalked up to this early just bout of tragedy. Misanthropy, um, huh? Yeah. Okay. What would you say? <laughs> misanthropy? No. All right. So um, <laughs> she, <laughs> she just kind of adopted this persona, which is, you would call it kind of emo today a little bit, but like, a really funny, sharp emo person, maybe a little bit, especially when she was young. She described herself as um, uh, pl a plain, disagreeable child with stringy hair and a yen to write poetry. Um, and that tragedy began when she was four years old when her mom died. Yeah. Apparently, that was just that just shaped her immediately, which uh, something like that will. She also said that her father was terrible to her, possibly physically abusive, although some of the biographers of her aren't sure if that's true. And Livia points out that that's a uh, long-running, ongoing thing yeah. about whether stuff she said about herself was true or not. And then the converse of that, she frequently denied saying some of the quips that were attributed to her. Yeah, it, it's pretty interesting. Like, uh, she seemed like the kind of person that would – she loved to spin a yarn, and if the facts were fudged – because it made for a better story, then that's fine. Right. Uh, but it kind of makes it difficult to parse out the person from the persona. And that was certainly the case. Like you said, some people aren't so sure about the dad. Uh, she apparently also had a pretty evil stepmother situation. Mm -hmm. uh, she referred to her stepmother as the housekeeper, which I think is pretty funny. I also saw she would call her, hey, you. Hey, you. <laughs> Uh, stepmom died in 1903, so Dorothy was still just nine years old mm -hmm. and also had an uncle um, that was apparently pretty close to the family that died on the Titanic. Wow. Uh, her dad died shortly thereafter, and if I do the math right, I think she was like 19 or 20 when yeah. she was basically kind of uh, – seems like left alone in the world for the most part. Although she did have a sister, but I didn't, I didn't see much about how close they were. I didn't even see that she had a sister. Yeah, there was a sister in there somewhere. So when her dad died, her dad was very prosperous um, as a garment in the garment industry. So it was her uncle. As a garment. But <laughs> apparently, um, he did not invest wisely. And uh -huh. so when he died, he didn't leave much for her. So that was the first time that she had to go get a job. And her first job was um, playing piano in a dance school, which is kind of a cool first job, but apparently she hated it because it was like actual work. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's the one thing I, that may be a through line here is that I don't think she loved to work super hard. She did not. She said she doesn't like rich people, but she she thought she'd be a darling at it. Right, exactly. Um, things changed for her in 1914. She sold her first poem uh, to Vanity Fair magazine. Uh, it was mm -hmm. called Any Porch, and this sort of began her – career as kind of a, a high society satirist. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, paid 12 bucks for that poem, which is about 300 bucks today, which is that's a lot of money for a poem. Yeah. Uh, even today. I mean, good luck at $300 for a poem. Uh, and then a gentleman <laughs> came into her life named, a uh, very formative figure named Frank uh, Crown and Shield. Uh-huh. And he said, hey, I like the cut of your jib. You're a pretty talented writer. I'm going to give you a full-time staff job here at Vogue magazine, and I'm going to pay you 10 bucks a week, uh, which is not bad pay at the time, uh, even though apparently Parker said she spent most of that on her housing, like eight of 10 right. went to her room and board. Yeah. So Crown and Shield, he was the editor of Vanity Fair, but Vogue was like a sister magazine to Vanity Fair, I believe. Yeah, they were all Condé Nast publications. <clears throat> so he was or she was Crown and Shield's protege, from what I understand. And she went to work for a woman named Edna Wool- Woodman or Woolman, uh, yeah, Woolman Chase. She was a female editor-in-chief, which was very rare at the time. Um, and uh, Dorothy Parker got her first job writing captions. And she would get bored easily because captions are supposed to be pretty normal and mm-hmm. boring. Is prosaic the correct word? Uh, sh- I don't know. <laughs> okay. Well, let's just go with prosaic because it seems like it's the right word. Okay. But um, So she very quickly started to tr- try to slip in. You remember when we used to write for How Stuff Works and we tried to slip in hilarious things into, into um, like, uh, cut lines, the captions under photos? Oh, dude, I thought of us a lot during this because that's all, <laughs> we did that all the time to try and make things a little more interesting. Right. And I think both of us had editors that were constantly saying, like, what are you doing? You can't do that. So so she would she was doing basically the same thing. So she became kind of a, a thorn in Edna Chase's side. Um, but not enough that she was fired at this point. She actually was um, uh, she was promoted basically after PG Woodhouse. Um, the humorist stopped being the drama critic for Vanity Fair. They turned to Dorothy Parker to become that, to fill that role, to review plays. And she was only 24 at the time. Uh, and by that time, she'd been married a year to a guy named Ed, Edwin Pond Parker II, stockbroker. Yeah, he was, uh, he enlisted in the Army, as a lot of guys did back then, Wilton fought in World War I. Mm-hmm. Um, and like you said, when she was 24, she was this play uh, or theater uh, reviewer and was, was known sort of for doing the same thing in the reviews of making sort of biting, cutting remarks about high society. Right. Uh, one kind of funny one, she was writing about a play, and she said, not even the presence in the first night audience of Mr. William Randolph Hearst could spoil my evening. <laughs> So a lot of great punchlines. She, she was pretty good at like setting someone up to think they may be getting a compliment and then like, yes. cutting their legs out from under them. That was actually her whole thing. Like she was supposedly fairly soft-spoken, kind of quiet. You might even call her shy at first, but also really complimentary, like really kind. And then she would kind of build you up until uh-huh. you weren't even paying attention Watch anymore because you were just so <laughs> drunk on the praise she was giving you. And then, bam, she cut your legs out. You probably didn't even notice, but everyone else in the conversation listening in is having a good laugh. That right. was her her whole jam. And it's really important to say her purpose wasn't to be mean. There was a real uh, purpose to her, um, her, like, biting criticism. And it was usually... Um, a bullying, self-gratification, uh-huh. acceptance of praise, um, worship from 
uh, the lower classes. Like, that's why she didn't like high society types. She also didn't like feigned graciousness, like high society types who were so nice that they, they gave their housekeeper an extra hour uh, to go home early one, one week, and now they feel really great about themselves. Those kind of things, like, just all the stuff that just kind of makes somebody gross that she was surrounded by in her life— that is what really kind of drove her the craziest, and that is what she would attack. And it didn't matter who you were. It didn't matter what your station in life. Although I don't believe she punched down very often. Um, you, were, you were subject to that criticism if you kind of allowed yourself to behave that way. Yeah, she probably would have been a, a stand-up comedian today mm-hmm. now that I think about it. Like there's a little bit of, of Miss Maisel in this. You know, but that wasn't really a job that women had back then. It wasn't a job period, I don't think, at the time. No. And there was one other criticism I want to point out that she wrote in – I don't remember where she wrote it, but she was criticizing, I think, an actress in a play. And she said that um, as a source of entertainment, she ranks somewhere between a sprig of parsley and a single ice skate. (laughs) (laughs) That's, pretty That's good. just good stuff. That's not even – it's just smart, you know? Like oh, yeah. who would think of a single ice skate as conveying like just how not fun something is? Like it was just brilliant stuff, and she was full of that. Yeah, she pushed it too far though, as people like that often do. Uh, lost her job in 1920. Uh, I think it was sort of a you insulted the wrong person kind of thing. Uh, there mm-hmm. was a column where she uh, was reviewing a play – she accused the playwright basically of plagiarizing himself. And right. then the, what the real deal was, though, the real sort of last straw was there was an actor, uh, an actress named Billy Burke in there who was criticized and sort of likened to this risque vaudeville star, which was not like a good, you know, comparison to make at the time. Right. Uh, but that actress was the wife of Florence Zigfield, who put a lot of money into advertisements with Vanity Fair and, and a good friend of Nast, of Condé Nast. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of it. So uh, apparently she got the news at the Plaza Hotel. And as legend has it, she ordered the most expensive dessert on the menu, then left and took it with her. Right. So, oh, I don't even think she took it with her. I think she left before it came just long enough to, to waste it. Oh, I saw that she took it with her. Oh, did she? Awesome. Yeah. Um, so uh, that's, even, that's even better. Um, there's one other thing I want to point out about her criticism, or two other things, Chuck. First of all, after she was fired from uh, Vanity Fair, she that was not the end of her criti- critic career. Like She went on to, to be a book reviewer for The New Yorker. Um, but her, her criticism, her columns, she had no training whatsoever. She didn't she didn't like take any kind of classes or education on criticism, like technique and theory and all that stuff. All of her reviews were just totally subjective, but she was so funny and so entertaining and so insightful that she became like an instant sensation. And then the other thing I want to say about it, from what I can tell, is that her criticism was not always negative. That if you actually produced like a really good oh, play sure. or a really good book or something like that, she could use that same wit to for praise as well. And I read that there was there's some book that she reviewed. Um, she was saying, to say of it here as a magnificent novel is rather like gazing into the Grand Canyon and saying, well, 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 quite a slice. Yeah, I mean, she was a legitimate uh, critique. Or she, right, she, but, she put forth legitimate critique. Right, and if it was 
praise, it was praise. If it was negative, which I think it more often was, it was negative. She yeah. didn't like crud. Well, I don't even think it more often was negative even. I think that's the stuff that gets pulled because she's Dorothy Parker. I see. That's a really good point, Chuck. I think you might be right. I don't think they were like, hey, this is supposed to be a real turd. Let's put Parker on it. Because, like, she'll just she'll rip him a new one. It'll be great. <laughs> <laughs> I hate that word so much. Turd? Yes. <laughs> it's terrible. It's terrible. It's even worse because it's spelled with a U. It looks bad on paper, in yep. print. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, it's and it even evokes the color brown somehow. Somehow. Uh, uh, yeah. I think we should take a break. Mm-hmm. We should revisit that word. Mm-hmm. No. Okay. All right. We'll be right back. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes. That it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, we have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Joshua and Charles, stuff you should know. All right, Mr. Turd. <laughs> so when when she got fired from uh, Vanity Fair, there were two employees, Robert Benchley and Robert E. Sherwood, who were such friends with her that they actually quit in protest because apparently she wasn't wrong with her with her um, her criticism that got her fired, mm-hmm. and she was just fired because she insulted a, a very high ranking friend of the publisher. So um, they actually quit in protest, and I mean that is to inspire. A couple of people to quit because you were fired is really saying something. Like, it's almost like a trope, you know, yeah. now. But if you stop and think about it in reality, somebody being like, so long, paycheck, so long, steady work. Sure. I'm, I, like, this person should not have been fired, and I'm, I'm taking my talents away from you because you don't deserve them because you fired this person. That's a really big deal. If someone fired you, I would quit. Thank you. Same to you. All right. Deal. Okay. You hear Let's that, everybody? Him. You hear that, uh, bosses? <laughs> yeah. Hopefully that we we don't get tested, but yeah. I, we would have been fired by this point if we were going to at all. You I think. would think so, right? But hey, there's always the future. <laughs> uh, so now we get to the point where we can talk about the vicious circle uh, again, which was the the round table, generally lunches, although they they lunched for many hours at the Algonquin Hotel, which is I believe is still there in New York, right? And still I think the Algonquin. So, yeah. Yeah, I want to stay there sometime. I'm gonna check that. Place but it's out. it's now the Algonquin by Hyatt, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's funny and probably true. Uh, so this was a, a period of time over about a decade or so that first started in June of 1919 when they all got together for lunch to welcome home their friend Alexander Woolcott from mm. his World War One uh, correspondence job. They roasted them, they got drunk, uh, they had a good time, and they said, hey, let's come back tomorrow, and and we don't have to have a special occasion to get together and drink scotch at lunch. Right. And it kind of became like sort of a a Studio 54 uh, booth scene where, you know, where you see Mick Jagger with uh, Andy Warhol and like Mickey Dolan's from the Monkees and like a painter, you know, it was people from all different walks of life. Like Harpo Marx might be there. Yeah. There might be a fiction writer like Edna Ferber or a sports writer like Haywood Brown mm-hmm. or columnists or screenwriters or playwrights. Mm-hmm. And it was just like, it kind of became the cool, like a certain kind of cool crowd was hanging out at this round table. Yeah, especially it was especially considered cool among the intelligentsia. Yeah, right, smart and literary types generally. So it it became like a worshipful gathering, um, and it, people knew about it because a lot of these people were columnists in like you know the New York Times and later on the New Yorker and like these big publications, and they would write about like a quip that that um, Dorothy Parker said. Apparently, like um, she would say something at lunch one day and it'd be in the New York Times the yeah. next day. Uh, I think Wyatt Cooper was the one that said she was probably the most quoted woman of the 1920s um, because she was so funny, but also because she was in a position to be so exposed. Um, but the, the Algonquin Roundtable, the fact that it became the stuff of legend, the more legendary it came, the, I think the the more um, kind of disgruntled by the whole idea Dorothy Parker became. I think if Dorothy Parker heard that, she would say, name one other woman who was even quoted in the 1920s, dear. 
<laughs> oh man. And I go, uh, er, uh. uh, they became so sort of popular and famous just for these lunches in this round table that the uh, manager of the hotel, Mr. Frank Case, started seating them in a very sort of public area in the Rose Room so people could just kind of come by and watch them have lunch and talk smack to each other. Yes. So um, they, like you said, like these lunches would also go, by the way, I'm going to say Greta Garbo. How about that? Oh, great. Sure. Okay. Um, these lunches would turn into dinner. And in very short order after um, their uh, the initial uh, meeting in June of 1919, prohibition started. So that scotch they were sipping turned into bootleg scotch that yeah. they had to kind of surreptitiously drink, but they were all super drunk from lunch onward, and they would go to people's houses and have cocktails afterward. They would vacation together. They became like really good friends. It sounds but fantastic. It, it does sound fun for sure. Um, but even more um, important, I would say, is that a lot of them came to collaborate. It was like a really productive group. And so not only did some like get together and write like screenplays together or plays, they would actually use one another as characters in their books or their plays. Like um, Alexander Walcott, he was like the stock acerbic um, coarse um, character. Uh, who was kind of the center of the man who came to dinner. It mm -hmm. was based on him. There are plenty of um, characters in different plays that you never heard of that were based on Dorothy Parker. Um, they just used each other as inspiration in addition to collaborating with one another directly. And, as you would think, Dorothy Parker also sort of undercut the importance of the whole Algonquin vicious circle. Mm -hmm. uh, she was quoted as saying, that roundtable thing was greatly overrated, full of businessmen, and publicity people and hangers-on and a lot of second-rate writers saying, did you hear what I said the other day? So yeah. I get the impression that it's a little bit of both. It may have been a little overplayed, but I think she also sort of vastly underplayed what was going on in that sort of self-deprecating way again. Well, I, I also saw that she said it was just a bunch of loudmouths showing off, saving their gags for days, waiting for a chance to spring them. <laughs> yeah. So um, I that and I think that kind of ties into that idea of like, you know, just being grossed out by people heaping praise onto yeah. other people, and then those people accepting all that praise and basking in it, and then the more that that happened, the more she was like, forget this. So um, yeah, I'm sure it's like you said, it was both, but uh, I feel like that was the reason she kind of distanced herself from it through criticism. Yeah, I get the impression, and this is I may just be reading too much into this that she. She didn't love the spotlight, uh, and she was sort of in it because she was just so smart and funny. Mm -hmm. uh, I think she definitely hated phonies. Yes. And that sort of you know ties into the upper crust thing. Um, she probably would have loved Catcher in the Rye. When was that written? The 50s? She's, I'm sure she was alive while it was published. She died in 1968. Spoiler alert. Yeah. <laughs> it's not or 67. She also, it wasn't just the round table. I think Livia uh, took great pains to sort of talk about other people and uh, non-literary people that she hung out with, um, as well as other writers that just didn't, you know, like she was a friend of Ernest Hemingway, but I don't think Ernest Hemingway was one to like sit around a round table and like crack jokes and stuff like that. Right. He, he had like elephants to shoot. So Hemingway was a buddy. Um I think uh, he supposedly, uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald ended up basing a lot of the Great Gatsby parties after what happened in the social circle uh, mm -hmm. at the Algonquin. So, 
you know, I think she had an influence on other writers as well, you know? For sure. Um, yeah, and she was very quoted and also misquoted, uh, and I think she inspired a lot of people for sure. Let's talk. Should we talk about some of the great quotes? Sure. All right. Well, one of them was uh, someone said, apparently, like, use the word horticulture in a sentence. And she said, you can lead a horticulture, but you can't make her think. And I think that's off the dome. Like, she was known for just being that quick, you know? Right. Yeah, that's a big part of it. And that's why she was saying, like, people would be saving their gags for days just waiting for a chance to spring them. She did not do that. Right. It just came into her head. Like, she was just that sharp. Yes. Um, my favorite is this. You ready? So uh-huh. Calvin Coolidge, the president, apparently he was very famously <laughs> quiet. Very good one. And um, she uh, she was told about the death of Calvin Coolidge, and she whispered, how do they know? Yeah. It actually took me a second <laughs> to figure that one out. And then once I got it, it was that's a really good one. Yeah, I like that one too. Uh, but she was also, like you said, misquoted. Or not only misquoted, but I think other quotes were uh, attributed to her Right. Uh, that she said that she never said. Um, a very famous one uh, from Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrugged, supposedly she said, uh, it is not a novel to be tossed aside lightly. It should be thrown with great force, which is a great <laughs> quote. But she said that she never said that, uh, nor did she say, uh, the first thing I do in the morning is brush my teeth and sharpen my tongue. Yeah, that's a little too... Like, she's joining in the celebration of her. Yeah, and she wouldn't do that. I could could have spotted that a mile away and been like, nay. Yeah, and and it seems like she got very annoyed at being, having things attributed to her, because that's part of the phoniness. Yeah, which is why I think she would just deny saying stuff a lot of times, too. Well, even if she did? Yes. Yeah. So, um, what the other, and also, like you said, too, I think she was kind of creating this, um, Fiction that was more entertaining than reality in some cases, too. Yeah, like a character. Like, I, th- I still think there's probably a lot of people who don't really understand who the— or maybe every, no one knows who the real Dorothy Parker was. Even Dorothy Parker might not have known, <laughs> but she probably did. Although I'll tell you who really did know, again, is um, Wyatt Cooper, Anderson Cooper of 60 Minutes and CNN and uh, New Year's fame. Um, his dad— wrote that uh, Esquire article I mentioned. I'm, I'm finally prepared to share the title. Okay. It's, whatever you think Dorothy Cooper was like, she wasn't. Dorothy Parker. And it is, <laughs> what did I say, Cooper? Yeah. My God. Still got it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And I even have it written down as Cooper. That's why <laughs> I got it wrong. So that title I just said, but replaced Cooper with Parker. And it's one of the most insightful articles I've ever read about anybody. So even if Dorothy Parker didn't understand herself, Wyatt Cooper understood her. Like, it's a really good, interesting article that doesn't necessarily follow any timeline. It's just like Wyatt Cooper is kind of like, oh, yeah, and one other thing about her was this. And then he back it up with like three different stories that are also hilarious or maybe a little sad or something like that. Um, yeah, it's a really, really good article. I would recommend anybody go read it, even if you couldn't care less about Dorothy Parker. Well, hopefully they will after the end of this. Uh, she, uh, after she went away from Vanity Fair uh, by getting fired, <laughs> it's a nice way to say it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, she never worked like a regular staff job again. She became a, a very successful freelancer. Uh, she wrote for all kinds of magazines uh, that were popular at the time Saturday Evening Post, uh, Ladies Home Journal, 
uh, when The New Yorker was founded by her friend Harold Ross in 1925. I think you mentioned earlier she became a regular columnist uh, doing reviews, uh, short stories, her poems, again, what she called verses. Uh Uh, Between 26 and 33, she did publish books of poetry. She published three books of poetry and two short story collections, and one of which was a bestseller, uh, Enough Rope, was a poetry collection, which uh, was a bestseller and sold really mm-hmm. well. Yeah. And uh, where I'm trying to find where it was. She won a couple of pr- big prizes too, didn't she? She won the O. Henry Story Prize in 1929 for one, um, oh, I can't remember what it's called, Big Blonde. Big Blonde, yeah. About what a character I saw described as a serial mistress uh, in decline, and um, she attempts suicide. Um, and apparently that was a like it won a, a pretty prestigious prize. Um, she wrote very frequently about uh, love, especially modern love in the sense of in the 20s, they were just starting to deal with this idea of like, wait a minute, men and women are like working in the same places mm-hmm. and, you know, we're kind of interacting more now. And are you my equal? No, that doesn't seem right. Uh, But how does that translate into dating? You know, everybody kind of moved from the farm to the city and they were trying to figure it out. And so that was one of Dorothy Parker's favorite um, topics of of writing, both uh, verse and short stories as well. Yeah, she eventually would get, uh, I think, kind of just leave poetry behind. She stopped because she said that she didn't think she was getting any better. Mm-hmm. Uh, Which and, is, man, that is uh, admirable. Yeah, yeah. To not just, like, run something into the ground like we're doing. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're still getting better hey, here or there in I'm fits and starts. Yeah, man, I think I think this has been a great year, actually. Okay. Uh, you Vintage didn't think I was 2022. <laughs> uh, in 56, um, she talked about... Just, again, sort of her reputation being overblown. She said it got so bad that audiences began to laugh before I opened my mouth. So her -hmm. reputation preceded her in a way that she wasn't (laughs) comfortable with. (laughs) And I think she didn't feel like it was earned. Um, I have a suspicion that she might have been deeply – oh, geez, I'm blanking. What's the word when you don't feel good about yourself? Um, Insecure. uh, Sure. A lot of these things that happened with her and the way she portrayed herself kind of makes me think she might have been insecure in her in her writing and with sort of getting attention as somebody who was doing good things. If I can't if, – if no one minds me going back to the same well of Wyatt Cooper, he <laughs> he basically said she seemed to prefer misery. That's why I compared oh, her to like an emo person earlier. Uh-huh. Like um, he gave a great example where um, you'd be hanging out at her house and she'd get a phone call from a friend and she'd tell the the help, like, tell, tell them I'm not home. And then later on in that same visit, she'd complain about how that exact same friend never called anymore. Oh, interesting. So like it was a self-imposed kind of thing. Like she seemed to just feel m- more comfortable, isolated but tried to make it so that it wasn't her own choice. Yeah. I don't understand why. I don't know if it was to get sympathy. It doesn't seem to have been. It's, she was just kind of bizarre in that way. All right. Should we take a second break? Yes. Yes, we should. All right. So we'll take that break, and we'll be back to talk about uh, from this point forward in Dorothy <laughs> Parker's life. Yeah. 
something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, we have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. So Chuck, one of the things that she did very sensibly after she kind of abandoned poetry and short story writing was to go to Hollywood and become a screenwriter. And she did that um, through kind of marrying a guy named Alan Campbell, an actor, back in 1934. He was 10 years younger than she was. And um, they ended up being screenwriting partners together after he moved her out to Hollywood. Yeah, so her just to tie up her first husband's situation, uh, he came back from the war, apparently was an alcoholic and drug addict, mm-hmm. and they were separated. She had an abortion. 
uh, and they got divorced. So he died of a drug overdose at the age of 39. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's when she met the new guy and the new guy, Alan Campbell. And uh, <laughs> like you said, went to Hollywood to write movies. Um, she was became pregnant at the uh, and it's still, you know, sort of old to get pregnant now, but it's certainly at the time being pregnant at 42 years old mm -hmm. in the 1930s was uh, a tough situation. And she did have a miscarriage that devastated her. Um, but she was, she sort of had a on again, off again relationship mm -hmm. with this guy. They were the, the kind that would get divorced and then reconcile and then remarry and then split yeah. up again, then move back together again. Yeah. But they had a pretty uh, prolific partnership. Uh, wherein he would, and a lot of writing partners still kind of have this arrangement. Someone might be really good at nailing dialogue, and the other partner might be really good at uh, structure and character development and stuff like that. So he would develop the structure of a script and sort of sketch out scenes, and she would come in with her, you know, rapier's wit and come up with all that clever dialogue and got a lot of money and attention and awards, mm -hmm. or at least nominations. Yeah. She was the co-writer on *The Star Is Born*, the first one from 1937. Yeah, and they were making a hundred over a hundred thousand dollars a week. A week. That's so a week. much money. As just just screenwriting, and they were having a blast doing it. They get drunk every day. That's they were today friends money, with by everybody. The way. Yeah, yeah. They were friends with everybody in their neighborhood, and it was just a, it sounds like a really grand time. Um, and then, uh, unfortunately, Alan Campbell died. Um, they think it might be a suicide, although she apparently decided that that was not the case. So she got it listed as an accident on his death certificate. And right after that, she's like, I'm, I'm going back to New York. She said, New York is the only place to be in the whole country. Um, I, I'm guessing California was a little too painful after the death of Alan Campbell. But I also think like she just preferred living in New York anyway. Yeah, I think you're right. There was another thing that happened to her that probably prompted her to move to New York, and that was um, her activism. Like, she's known for her quips and her sharp wit. Um, and you kind of have to dig in a little further before you realize, like, she was actually like a legit dyed-in-the-wool lefty activist who really cared about things like racism and civil rights long before this was on the radar of most people. Yeah, 100%. She... Uh, was one of the founders of the Screenwriters Guild, very pro-union, uh, as you probably shouldn't be surprised by this point. Mm -hmm. uh, very anti-Nazi early on. This is like you know, before the Amer long before the Americans were involved in World War II. Right. Uh, she you know she had a half Jewish father, and I think it seems like sort of struggled over the years with her Jewish heritage, but mm -hmm. uh, came out hard against uh, Lenny Riefenstahl. When she visited Hollywood and was sort of, and this was in, I think, 1938, uh, and basically said, like, no, you shouldn't take meetings with her. You shouldn't take meetings with any Nazis. Right. And, like, all these agents need to just close their doors to them, basically. And I thought I couldn't admire her anymore. <laughs> That's right. She founded an anti-Nazi league. I mean, hats off to her, right? So. She also um, helped raise money to defend the Scottsboro Boys, who were uh, nine black teenagers in Alabama who were unjustly convicted and sentenced in the uh, rape of two white women. Um, and there was a really big um, push by the American Communist Party to to basically rescue these boys from this unjust system. And she was 
at the very least, communist adjacent, if not an outright sympathizer. I think a lot of her interests and viewpoints really kind of dovetailed with the Communist Party in America at the time. Um, And she was also virulently anti-fascist. And for all of this combined, her anti-fascism, her um, work for civil rights, her kind of sympathy for um, the Communist Party, um, got her essentially first informally blacklisted and then pretty much officially blacklisted in Hollywood starting in the 40s. Yeah. So before the blacklist, there was something called the Red Channels, which was a pamphlet that kind of said, hey, you know, you may not want to hire these people if you're in broadcasting. Yeah, it was put out real quick, Chuck, by a right-wing um, publication that was um, called Counterattack, I believe. And it was made by three former FBI agents who just basically created dossiers on everybody in Hollywood to, to root out who were the communists. And a lot of them were accused just for contributing to, like, you know, civil rights causes or things like that. I was just about to point that out. That is, uh, again, pre-blacklist. Uh, it should not surprise you that she eventually was officially blacklisted uh, for a short time. Uh, she was also on the FBI watch list. They had a file on her. Uh, they called her a concealed communist. And, you know, just go back and listen to our McCarthyism episode mm-hmm. uh, if you want to learn anything else about the House of Un-American Activities Committee. Uh, she did go before them in 55 and took the fifth. And the FBI eventually would clear her uh, of being a security threat, but... I think, you know, I don't think any of those people are ever completely off the list, if you know what I mean. No, no, for sure. And if you got on that list, if you were in that pamphlet, it doesn't matter how big of a star you were. You just could not find work all of a sudden. You get fired from your current job. It was crazy. Um, But that's what happened, and it was part of that McCarthy era. So she moved back to New York, and— she, I saw that she basically lived out the last act of her life in a very surprising manner as a little old lady, basically. Yeah. Uh, she died at age 73, and uh, I think she left all her, her money to Reverend Martin Luther King. And then once he died, that went to the NAACP. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a New Yorker article that um, kind of indicates, like, no one knows exactly how much money that ended up being for the NAACP, but mm-hmm. I think it was a lot. And um, this is sort of a, a not-so-fun way to end this, but one of her good friends, Lillian Hellman, was a playwright, someone she knew for a long, long time, was uh, designated as her executor for her will and estate, mm-hmm. uh, but was mad because she wasn't left any money. And so she basically threw all her stuff away, threw away all her papers, all of the you know manuscripts that she had been working on in her life, And uh, Dorothy Parker did not want to have a big deal made about her death, wanted a quiet cremation. And she, against her wishes, organized a big public memorial. It seems like uh, just in defiance of her wishes because she was mad about being, uh, I guess, uh, left out of her will. Slightly in Hellman's defense, she largely supported uh, Dorothy Parker during their old age years from 1963 to 67. So I think she expected to kind of be repaid. But still, it's definitely not worth going against somebody's wishes, you know. So Dorothy Parker's ashes had a really interesting afterlife. She had no heirs, no family. 
So um, they were left at the crematorium from 1967 to 1973 when the crematorium finally got fed up of storing it and just mailed them to the address of her former lawyer. But her lawyer had retired, but his partner was still in business. Her partner didn't know anything about this, didn't know what to do with the ashes, didn't know who to contact. So he just put her in his desk drawer. And from 1973 to 1988, Dorothy Parker spent... Uh, in a desk drawer in her former lawyer's office. She'd probably think that's funny. I think so, but I, if she were in there, she would have been really bored, too. Yeah. Uh, they would eventually move, though, if you go to New York now. Uh, you can go up to the Bronx to Woodlawn Cemetery, mm-hmm. uh, where a tour guide and big fan of hers eventually put her ashes, was given her ashes. He didn't steal them. <laughs> right. And there's a, a little small plaque Uh, with a phrase that she apparently proposed for her epitaph, which is, excuse my dust. Just beautiful. It beats Shakespeare's epitaph, right? What was Shakespeare's? It was some clumsy, ham-fisted curse that people are like, Shakespeare wouldn't have written that. Gas, grass, or what was it? (laughs) Was that it? (laughs) No one rides for free. Oh, man, Chuck. Since Chuck said that hilarious quip, uh, that means this is the end of the Dorothy Parker episode. If you want to know more about her, go read her stuff. It's really good and uh, fun. And since I said it's really good and fun, that means it's time for listener mail. I'm going to call this a counterpoint to another listener mail. Oh, okay. We got the email from the teacher that talked about PBIS, positive behavioral interventions and support. Oh, yeah. And... uh, Apparently, there's a lot of controversy surrounding that because Jennifer here says this. Hey, guys, I've been listening for years. I learned so many cool things. After the casino bombing episode, however, you read a letter from a gentleman who wrote about using PBIS in his classroom. I taught school for 30 years and finally left, uh, as did hundreds of my colleagues, because PBIS has destroyed public education. Uh, Teachers can be kind to students without a PBS program in place. My co-teacher was permanently disabled by a student it's my feeling that once you're an adult uh, in society uh, society will hand you consequences and students may not be taught how to be prepared for that with PBIS schools Uh, thanks for stating that it may or may not work in your own home Chuck I was required to take two college classes on this so it's not that I don't understand it Uh, keep giving us great knowledge on millions of topics and that is from Jennifer Awesome. Thank you, Jennifer, for the counterpoint. There may be a good uh, episode in there now that I see this. Yeah, I think you might be right, Chuck. Anytime there's controversy like that, we're on it. Let's do it. Every time I hear uh, point or counterpoint, I'm reminded of that that um, part from Airplane where they're, they're debating the, the whole thing where the, uh, I think it's Airplane 2 maybe, where uh-huh. the guy goes, let them crash. I don't remember that line. Yeah, it's good. That's pretty good. Um, yeah. It's way funnier in the movie than what I just did. If you want to get in touch with us like Jennifer did and offer a counterpoint, uh, you can send it to stuffpodcast at iheartradio.com. Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 
the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side.